to suggest that it should not be passed. Under the bill, uh, I feel like there should be like a, a wall to punch or just punching bags or just things that we can do to our anger because the fact that there are people in positions of power who are, all right, I'm going to read this bill and then uh, hope you're sitting down or breathing or doing whatever because it's going to make you angry. Under the bill, any doctor who performs an abortion except to save the life of a woman or to preserve her health, which would have his or her license taken away. The Oklahoma State Medical Association has opposed the bill, viewing it as an attempt to intimidate physicians and inject politics into the physician-patient relationship. I'm stunned that this POS bill would get this far, and I'm writing to call for action. If Oklahoma Governor Mary Fallon signs it, she may very well kiss her political career goodbye. She's in a bad spot. Damned if you do, and damned if you don't. Compliments of the good old boys in the good old party, that's GOP, where extremists rule the day. But then, it was her choice to remain a member of a party that votes against women. To contact Governor Fallon, here is her office phone and fax. I am unable to find an email at this time, but uh, when and if you call, please keep in mind that although she is part of the problem, she did not create the bill, nor has she signed it yet. It is hoped she will do the right thing. And Governor Mary Fallon, if you want to send her a letter, I'll read the address, or if you're in Oklahoma, I don't, if I have any listeners out in Oklahoma City or you know folks, go give her a visit. Uh, so Oklahoma State Capitol is at 2300 North Lincoln Boulevard, room 212 in Oklahoma City. I can send her a postcard even. Uh, it's Oklahoma City OK, 73105. Call on the phone, 405-521-2342. Again, that's 405-521-2342. Let your voice be heard. If you have a fax machine and you feel like sending a fax, why not do that? The fax number is 405-521-3353. And uh, then they have a quote from Susan B. Anthony, as there should be, I guess, in a lot of places. Uh, no self-respecting woman should wish or work for the success of a party that ignores her sex. And that's from 1872, a long time ago. The debate over our right to choose what's best for our bodies and our future will most likely outlive us. But... We fight because it's what our foremothers and forefathers did for us, and it's what we must do for our daughters and their daughters. It's been said in different ways that anti-choice legislation will never end abortions. They will only create unsafe abortions. Be sure we are hashtag not going back to the alley. And not going back is the only part of the hashtag to the alleys after that. Here are 13 large and small reproductive rights organizations and social media groups to visit slash support. They can offer information and or discussion about women's rights and laws against women. Uh, Planned Parenthood, NARL, which I hugely support. I also support Planned Parenthood, but NARL more so. Uh, Pro-Choice America. Now, National Organization for Women. Uh, NAF, which is the National Abortion Federation. RH Reality. UniteWomen.org. Abortion.com. That's glad that exists. Uh, fight Laws Against Women. We Are Fuse, and that's F-U-S-E. Abigail Adams Brigade. Pro-choice liberals, stop patriarchy now, and Center for Reproductive Rights. Also those last two, yes. Uh, the Guttmacher Institute is an excellent source of women's reproductive data and current legislation. Many thanks to Meteor Blades for reporting this news and for his continued pro-choice advocacy for women's reproductive rights. You can read the story here, and they have a link to that. And so we march on, and we are hashtag not going back. And you can find all the links to all these organizations on the Facebook page, facebook.com slash weekly rev. I think it's time for some more music. Here's another song that was performed, and it's kind of angry, but also has a nice uh, beat to it. So play this music, and then we'll be back with some more stories, some positive and some 
mm, we'll, 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 we'll find ways to, to make it positive. Any song that mentions wearing sweatpants, I think is great. That was uh, the band's called Andrew Jackson Jihad, and the song's called Hate Rain On Me. Next, we're going to have a story from The Intercept, one of my favorite places to find news. And this is written by Glenn Greenwald, whom I used to call my boyfriend, jokingly. Uh, met him once, and I dig his writing, and that he questions uh, authority and uh, just really stands up for what's happening what's going on so this comes from the intercept and you can find that at theintercept.com uh, new study shows mass surveillance breeds meekness fear and self-censorship amen to that and i think that's kind of like what a lot of us already knew and this uh just explains that a little bit more and extrapolates uh some more ideas behind that and why that is and this came out on april 28th that was yesterday all right. A newly published study from Oxford's John Penny provides empirical evidence for a key argument long made by privacy advocates, that the mere existence of a surveillance state breeds fear and conformity and stifles free expression. Reporting on the study, the Washington Post this morning described this phenomenon. If we think that authorities are watching our online actions, we might stop visiting certain websites or not say certain things just to avoid seeming suspicious. The new study documents how, in the wake of the 2013 Snowden revelations, of which 87% of Americans are aware, there was a 20% decline in page views on Wikipedia articles related to terrorism, including those that mentioned Al-Qaeda, car bomb, or Taliban. People were afraid to read articles about those topics because of fear that doing so would bring them under a cloud of suspicion. The dangers of that dynamic were expressed well by Penny. 
If people are spooked or deterred from learning about important policy matters like terrorism and national security, this is a real threat to proper democratic debate. As the Post explains, several other studies have also demonstrated how mass surveillance crushes free expression and free thought. A 2015 study examined Google search data and demonstrated that, Post Snowden, users were less likely to search using search terms that they believed might get them in trouble with the U.S. government, and that these results suggest that there is a chilling effect on search behavior from government surveillance on the Internet. The fear that causes self-censorship is well beyond the realm of theory. Ample evidence demonstrates that it's real and rational. A study from PEN, Pen America writers found that one in six writers had curbed their content out of fear of surveillance and showed that writers are not only overwhelmingly worried about government surveillance, but are engaging in self-censorship as a result. Scholars in Europe have been accused of being terrorist supporters by virtue of possessing research materials on extremist groups, while British libraries refuse to house any material on the Taliban for fear of being prosecuted for material, material support for terrorism. There are also numerous psychological studies demonstrating that people who believe they are being watched engaged in behavior far more compliant, conformist, and submissive than those who believe they are acting without monitoring. That same realization served centuries ago as the foundation of Jeremy Bentham's panopticon that behaviors of large groups of people can be effectively controlled through architectural structures that make it possible for them to be watched at any given moment, even though they can never know if they are in fact being monitored, thus forcing them to act as if they are always being watched. The same self-censoring chilling effect of the potential of being surveyed was also the crux of the tyranny about which Orwell warned in 1984. There was, of course, no way of knowing whether you were being watched at any given moment, how often, or on what system. The thought police plugged in on any individual wire was guesswork. It was even conceivable that they watched everybody all the time. But at any rate, they could plug in your wire whenever they wanted to. You had to live, did live, from habit that became instinct, and the assumption that every sound you made was overheard, and except in darkness, every movement scrutinized. This is a critical, though elusive, point which, as the Post notes, I've been arguing for years, including in the 2014 TED Talk I gave about the harms of privacy erosions. But one of my first visceral encounters with the har this harmful dynamic arose years before I worked on NSA disclosures. It occurred in 2010, the first time I ever wrote about WikiLeaks. This was before any of the group's most famous publications. What prompted my writing about WikiLeaks back then was a secret 2008 Pentagon report that declared the then little-known group a threat to national security and plotted how to destroy it. A report which, ironically enough, was leaked to WikiLeaks, which then published it online. Shortly thereafter, WikiLeaks published a 2008 CIA report describing, precisely it turns out, how the best hope for maintaining popular European support for the war in Afghanistan would be the election of Barack Obama as president, since he would be a pretty popular progressive face on war policies. As a result of that 2008 report, I researched WikiLeaks and interviewed its founder, Julian Assange, and found that they had been engaging in vital transparency projects around the world, from exposing illegal corporate waste dumping in East Africa to political corruption and official lies in Australia. 
but they had one significant problem, funding and human resource shortfalls were pre preventing them from processing and publishing numerous leaks. So I wrote an article describing their work and recommended that my readers support that work either by donating or volunteering, and I included links for how they could do so. In response, a large number of American readers expressed in emails in the comment section at private events, I'm sorry, at public events, the fear to me that while they support WikiLeaks work, they were petrified that supporting them would cause them to end up on a government list somewhere, or worse, charged with crimes if WikiLeaks ended up being formally charged as a national security threat. In other words, these were Americans who were voluntarily relinquishing core civil liberties, the right to support journalism they believe in and to politically organize, because of fear that their online donations and work would be monitored and surveyed. Subsequent revelations showing persecution and surveillance against WikiLeaks and its supporters, including an effort to prosecute them for their journalism, proved that these fears were quite rational. There is a reason governments, corporations, and multiple other entities of authority crave surveillance. It's precisely because the possibility of being monitored radically changes individual and collective behavior. Specifically, that possibility breeds fear and fosters collective conformity. That's always been int intuitively clear. Now, there is mounting empirical evidence proving it. Hmm. And I guess there'd be a pen drop, not a mic drop, but a pen drop because ugh, that's that's there. Okay, so this kind of go, goes along with it. I can't. I mean, sometimes I find when I do segues with these stories, it's kind of easy. Uh, it's it's tricky because a lot of times I don't want to read these stories, and uh, I still choose to because uh, people. Not everyone has a chance to share their voice and to share their stories and what's happening with them. So, the very least uh, one can do. Is, is is sure what's happening to them and get the word out. This comes from Boing Boing, which is a cool site to check out. They have a lot of good articles on there. I've been checking them out for a few years now, and this is by Cory Doctorow. And this came out uh, Wednesday, April 13th. Te in Texas, prisoners whose families maintain their social media presence face 45 days in solitary. Texas. Oh. And I know some folks from Texas who are in Texas. I visited once. Uh... Seriously, this, this, uh, the state. Uh, okay. All right. I, I don't have anything to add to that. I'm just, I'm just going to read the story. I have a smile on my face uh, uh, because that will help me get through this massive, massive injustice happening. And it's always intriguing. That's one thing about this, this uh, show. I end up finding new ways for people to be cruel to one another and to hurt one another. That's not, I'd rather it be the opposite. Like, let's find new ways for people to help each other and to uplift one another. That would be nice. Maybe I'll find some stories on that. So according to a new offender manual from Texas Department of Criminal Justice, prisoners whose families maintain a social media presence to call attention to their incarceration will be liable to harsh punishment, including up to 45 days in solitary, loss of privileges, and extra work duty. That's another reason I want to get rid of prisons. Oh. Mm. EFF does not oppose prison restrictions that target criminal behavior or harassment on social media by inmates. <coughs> Getting to that point of the show where I'm starting to lose my voice. All right. <clears throat> on social... Okay. Da -da -da -da. Starting again. I'm going to drink some water first because that's going to help the situation. That's going to That's going to That's going to help the situation quite a bit. All right. And 
Uh, yeah, I'm going to have some water first and take a little bit of a, a mini break. It's not really a break if you're listening because uh, I'm still here. I'm talking. What else can I say? It's a, it's a good day here in, uh, in San Francisco. Mm. There's a big protest. Donald Trump is in town, and by in town, I mean in Burlingame. And a lot of folks showed up to protest, which is awesome. So hopefully we'll have some clips of that for next time on the show. A lot of folks uh, standing up against him. Not a fan. Oh, I got a quick story to tell that'll break the tension. Is there tension? No, probably just some sadness. Uh, so there's a... Uh, I was going to say operation, but it's a, it's a project called the Young Storytellers Foundation. And I've volunteered with them a number of times. And they have kids um, write plays. And they, the kids all have mentors, and they, they write plays together. And then they cast actors. And it's a very, it's kind of a quick, they, they take time to write the plays, but then they do the, the casting very quick. So we kind of show up, show up at like 9, and then they, we do a very brief audition, which pretty much just we go up in front of the kids and say, I can do this. So some people are more physical. Some people are more like theatrically trained. I went up this time and was like, oh, I can play male or female characters because gender is fluid. And, you know, I like to get that message out there to the young folks because um, I feel like I would have appreciated that when I was young. Um, although I think, think now it's, things have gotten a lot more, uh, in most places, kids are a lot more aware of the options as far as gender conformity goes and how one can rebel against that and how it's all an illusion. Anyway, so we do that little brief thing and then they cast us in, in their plays and um, there are some really cool plays. It was really cool. Um, one I was in, it was a, uh, about, there's this kid like going from like a pink cloud to a blue cloud and they end up combining it so it's purple. That's I'm not doing it justice, but it was really awesome. It was really just kids are right on. And then there's another one where they're they're like trying to save the the world from this like really evil guy named Bill. Uh, spoiler alert. And I end up playing Bill and I have one line and it's like I kinda of walk on stage and it's like tall guy with blonde hair, so not me, but I was cast as this person. And he goes up and he's like, I'm not really Bill, I'm Donald Trump and then he gets like he has like this cannon that like releases farts and then it gets like it uh, backfires on him so he gets so Donald Trump gets covered in farts and that was awesome and so it was fun to be able to play that role I don't necessarily see myself as a Trump-esque person um, but it was awesome just to be like to inhabit this like jerk because um, I do think is a huge jerk and his father was a jerk and his grandfather was a jerk it just kind of runs in the family I guess and uh, the kids have this like you know really great reaction to it so it was awesome to be able to be like I'm playing this guy named Bill who's really Donald Trump who's a jerk and to, to see him be the the butt of a joke and to to not win I like that I like people who are mm, who are you know cruel and kind of and entice people to hate and to and be divisive and are mean and uh, just very divisive and oppressive when when they don't get their way. I think that's great. And if that had happened more often in history, hey, things would be a lot better off for all of us. All right. So now that I'm in a better mood, let's let's get me to a worse mood. Not a worse mood, but you know, here we go. So we're gonna read the story. How did I get on the? Oh yeah, the, the Trump protests. So that's great that people are protesting that. Can't say ding dong jerk. Well, he's a jerk. He's a jerk. And again. Ideally, I like to live in a world where one can just uplift, like I like to uplift people instead of putting people down. However, when there are people who are causing a lot of harm, they need to be called out for what they are. So speaking of people being called out for what they are, let's see what these guys in Texas are doing. Guys. I'm assuming they're guys. I'm assuming they're men because men cause a lot of problems. That's an assumption. And uh, tell me, uh, I'd like to see someone disagree with me about that. We'd have a discussion, but I think I'd be right. All right. 
EFF does not oppose prison restrictions that target criminal behavior. I'm going to start from the beginning because da 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 da. Okay. According to a new offender manual from Texas Department of Criminal Justice, prisoners whose families maintain a social justice, social, nope, social media presence to call attention to their incarceration will be liable to harsh punishment, including up to 45 days in solitary, loss of privileges, and extra work duty. EFF does not oppose prison restrictions that target criminal behavior or harassment on social media by inmates. However, However, a person does not lose all their rights to participate in public discourse when they are incarcerated. Supporters of inmates often use social media to raise attention about prison conditions and the appeal uh, campaigns of individual prisoners. This policy would not only prohibit the prisoners' exercise of their First Amendment rights, but also prevent the public from exercising their First Amendment rights to gather information about the criminal justice system from those most affected by it. If Martin Luther King Jr. had written letter from a Birmingham jail today from a Texas prison, this policy would prohibit his wife from publishing it on his social media accounts. As EFF previously reported, policies like these have been abused by prisons across the country, most notably in South Carolina. Man, South Carolina, for a while, the state was doing well. You, you guys decided not to do the, the, the anti-trans bathroom bill, and now here you go again, just getting yourself into more trouble. All right, most notably in South Carolina, where inmates sometimes received more than a decade in solitary confinement for maintaining a presence on social media? Fuck that! Ah! Jesus, that's sick. Oh, and that's the end of the article. So, all right, it's 114, and that's that's what got me. I always find a moment in the show, not always, but quite often, where I just lose it, and I despair, full of lots of despair. Oh, that's so sickening. Um, All right, here's something else. All right, this also comes from a super mainstream source, but the idea of this happening, I feel, is worth being discussed. AP Newsbreak, South Dakota tribe sues feds over ER closure. And this was written by Regina Garcia Cano, and this came out um, yesterday, April 28th. It's from Sioux Falls. A Native American tribe in South Dakota sued the federal government Thursday over the nearly five-month closure of the only emergency room on its reservation. The federal lawsuit filed Thursday by the Rosebud Sioux Tribe asks that federal officials be forced to reopen the emergency room at the hospital administered by the Indian Health Service. The agency shuttered the ER in early December, two weeks after federal inspectors uncovered serious failures that they said put patients' lives at risk. The lawsuit, which the Associated Press obtained ahead of it being filed, contends that the Indian Health Service, an arm of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, broke the law because an evaluation of the impact of the closure wasn't submitted to Congress at least a year before it was shut down, as required by the Indian Health Care Improvement Act. That evaluation must include several factors, including the quality of health care that would remain after such a closure, as well as the views of the tribe affected. It also requires the government to take into account how far tribal members would have to go to get care. IHS provides free health care to enroll tribal members as part of the government's treaty obligations to Native American tribes. 35-bed Rosebud Hospital has nearly 13,000 emergency room visits during the fiscal year that ended in September, or had nearly 13,000 emergency room visits during the fiscal year that ended in September. 
Since, de since the December 5th closure, patients have had to go to hospitals about 50 miles away in Valentine, Nebraska and Winter, South Dakota. The lawsuit alleges that in six weeks following the emergency rooms shut down, five people died and two babies were born in ambulances on the way to the nearest hospitals. IHS's decision has caused the tribe and its members immediate and irreparable injury, according to the lawsuit, which lists as defendants the federal government, the Health and Human Services Department, and Secretary Sylvia Burwell, IHS, and its top official, Mary Smith, and the director of the IHS's, IHS's regional office, Rear Admiral, Admiral? Um, Kevin Meeks. A spokeswoman for the Department of Health and Human Services said Thursday that the agency does not comment on pending uh, litigation. Former U.S. Attorney from North Dakota, Timothy Purden, who left that office a year ago to specialize in American Indian law for Minneapolis-based Robbins Kaplan, has said his company is taking the case free of charge. The emergency room came under scrutiny in mid-November during an unannounced visit from inspectors from the Centers uh, for Medicare and Medicaid Services, who concluded that serious deficiencies threatened the lives of patients. Their report noted one patient with a history of untreated tuberculosis who was treated without any apparent infection control measures being taken. Another patient who was having a heart attack didn't get treatment until 90 minutes after she arrived. IHS closed the emergency room, citing staffing changes and limited resources and now intends to privatize it as well as those at hospitals on the Winnebago, Winnebago, Winnebago Reservation in, in Nebraska and Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. The lawsuit comes one day before the deadline for IHS and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to reach a last chance agreement to address problems at Rosebud Hospital. Without it, the hospital won't be allowed to bill the government for services provided to Medicare and Medicaid-eligible patients after May 16th. The Indian Health Service, whose facilities bill Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurance for care given to patients who have had who have that coverage, historically has been severely underfunded. The tribe's lawyers are asking the U.S. District Court in Rapid City to require IHS to take sufficient measures to ensure health services are provided to tribal members. The lawyers argue that there is no rational basis or justification for the federal government to provide grossly inadequate health care to members of the tribe at levels that are substantially below and unequal to health care benefits given to federal inmates and others for whom it is required to provide health care. So once again, the folks who have been in this on this land for centuries uh, still being fucked with by the government. That's my synopsis, and glad that the folks are, are fighting back. Oh, and with with that, uh, not with that, and uh, I think it's time for a music break to, to cleanse the palate, as it were, and I think it's probably time for some more Prince, because we've only played one Prince song today. And <laughs> Pam is nodding in agreement, and that makes me feel good. So... Uh, what are some good ones? We played a lot of them last last week, um, and I like playing ones I don't hear that often. There's there's so many. He was so prolific and wrote so many, and I like finding new ones that I haven't heard before. Um, here's one called Party Man. I don't think I've heard it, so we're gonna play it, and it's gonna rock. And then we'll be back with some more news.
Chao. When a new trombone, my dog is handy. But when I want sex, I call candy, 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 candy. This is how you make repaste. It's one part flour to four parts water. Boil three cups of water and mix one cup of water with the one cup of flour. You add your mixture and you stir slowly. Stir it until you get a nice thick consistency. Let your wheat paste cool down and then pour it into a separate bucket. Using your brush, apply wheat paste onto the wall first, then apply your image, and then do a second coat of wheat paste on top of your image, 
And run away if you see cops now. <laughs> Just kidding. All right, welcome back. Uh, that was our original with uh, how to make wheat paste. So folks went to create art and put it up. Uh, that's an awesome way to, to go about doing it. And before that was Prince with Party Man, a song I hadn't heard before. Definitely uplifting, and that's wonderful. Um, I, I, sometimes we end up on e- email. I want to speak for myself. End up on email lists. I don't know how this happens. I was on a lot of. I'm on a lot of Bernie Sanders email lists. Like I agree with a lot of what he says. I don't remember ever signing up for anything related to him. And then now it's. I'm on a lot of mailing lists. But still, I find it's like every day he's like in my mailbox, and I'm like, okay. Uh, same with Jill Stein. Although I do, I, w- I am have been a registered Green Party person at points. Uh, I think I still am. Um, so anyway, I get lots of uh, emails from Jill Stein. And for folks who aren't aware, she's also running for president. There's more than just uh, the two parties, of course. And so Jill is running on the Green Party, uh, the Green Party ticket, and she's very much for super much most things I agree with, uh, which makes you know uh, demilitarizing everyone and everywhere and giving money for education and protecting the environment and a lot of, and like a lot of money for healthcare, just pretty much things that protect people and the planet. So I'm going to read an email she sent recently. Uh, Dear Roman, obviously not just to me, but that's what it starts with. Uh, The 2016 primary season is exposing a crisis of democracy in America. The prevalence of voter suppression from voters forced to stand in line for five hours in Arizona to over 100,000 voters purged from the rolls in New York is inexcusable. Meanwhile, in North Carolina, a federal judge has upheld new voting restrictions, including a voter ID law that will disproportionately block poor and minority voters from the polls. It's no secret that reducing voter turnout benefits the political establishment. It's time to bring real democracy to America by eliminating unfair barriers to voting and ensuring every vote counts. Join my call to establish a constitutional right to vote today. It may surprise you that the U.S. Constitution does not explicitly guarantee our right to vote. That's why establishing an explicit constitutional right to vote is critical to overcoming voter suppression. Across the country, we see people who do everything they're supposed to, yet their votes are not counted due to the negligence of election officials. All too often, these disenfranchised voters are disappeared from official election results with no legal recourse. An explicit constitutional right to vote would empower Americans to challenge systemic voter suppression and restore the integrity of our elections. If you're concerned about the wave of voter suppression, add your voice to the call to establish a constitutional right to vote. Voter suppression issues in state after state are symptomatic of an electoral system designed to prop up the establishment political parties. We see the same pattern everywhere, that partisan appointees control the electoral process, the establishment gains power, and the voters lose power. It's time to take control of elections away from the parties and put them in the hands of the people through independent citizen boards in charge of everything from voter registration to redistricting. It's also past time to discard the obsolete uh, first-past-the-post voting system and adopt improved voting systems already used successfully around the world. The current voting system has most voters feeling trapped between two parties that are growing more and more out of touch with the American people. 
with polls showing record unpopularity <laughs> uh, with polls showing record unpopularity for the Democratic and Republican frontrunners, we're facing the repugnant prospect of a general election where more votes are voting against what they fear than are voting for what they believe in. We can solve the lesser evil dilemma in a heartbeat by anarchy. No, she didn't say that. We can solve the lesser evil dilemma in a heartbeat by enacting ranked choice voting, which ensures that if your first choice doesn't win, your vote is automatically reassigned to your second choice, freeing voters to support the candidates they most agree with. And to bring real democracy to the United States, we need proportional representation, which gives you the freedom to vote for the representation you want, knowing that it's what you'll get. Countries with proportional representation, which includes most Western democracies, have significantly higher voter turnout because people are more likely to participate in democracy when they know their voice will be represented, even when they're in the minority. All of these reforms, proportional representation, ranked choice voting, independent election boards, and more, would move America closer to real democracy and help break the grip of the elite special interests who have hijacked our government. But it all starts with fighting back against voter suppression, and the best way to do that is with an explicit constitutional right to vote. Sign and share my call for a constitutional right to vote today. By standing together in our fundamental right to vote, we can build an unstoppable movement for an America and a world that works for all of us. It's in our hands! Jill Stein. Uh, <laughs> um, so... Uh, yeah, if you go to, I haven't posted this yet. I'm going to post it right now. Um, you can sign. I signed. Uh, that's one, one way to help. I, I'm definitely skeptical. I'm not going to lie. I'm skeptical of the whole voting thing. Even if, I mean, even the fact that like Jill is on the ballot, the idea that folks on the third party don't have as much uh, say in the media, even Bernie Sanders, who's like, running in on the democratic party oh that's another story we'll get to so i'm not a member of any of the bernie groups a lot of my friends are i like my facebook feed for the most part it's like bernie 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 so some hillary there's definitely some hillary supporters there there's some jill stein supporters and then there's like anarchists who are like fuck the whole system and i'm like cool um but there are bernie sanders groups that facebook decided to like uh cancel or just like get rid of and apparently it's from the hillary like pack like hired people to spam these groups with pornography and friends of mine have reported this so this comes like first-hand information first-hand second-hand information but people i know and trust have said that they received like people were spamming these groups with porn and so then people would report them to the facebook uh, and so Facebook had to take down these groups. And so like hundreds of thousands of organizers and Bernie supporters were then had their, uh, their communication restricted on Facebook. And that's pretty gross. That's really, really gross. Um, so with that being said, I'll, I'll add the Jill Stein thing in a bit when I can multitask. I can multitask, but I feel if I add it right now, I'm not going to be giving the, the show my full attention. So you can also just check out, uh, you can, where can you check it out? Uh, you can go to, what's the official, the official place to find Jill Stein? I would guess Green Party. I guess you type in Jill Stein, um, Jill 2016. Um, yes. Jill2016.com. There we go. Problem solved. Jill2016.com. Uh, Jill Stein for president. Uh, a new society. A new economy. Hashtag, it's in our hands. And 
she also is inviting Sanders to cooperate on political revolution and real democracy, which is pretty badass. A lot of the times, the, the folks are running against each other, and there's a lot of like people are attacking one another. And it's like, if everyone really wanted a better world, it'd be like, let's all learn how to work together and you know share our resources. And instead, it's a lot of people just fighting with one another, and that's gross and childlike and dumb and very regressive and reductive. And ugh, it's like I don't want any of that. So I, it would be great if, if Bernie were to hop on board with Jill Stein and if they could collaborate and share their resources and share their followers because they stand for a lot of the same things. Um, so I'll read a little bit from her page since I'm at her page. Why not? Americans deserve real solutions for the economic, social, and environmental crises we face. But the broken political system is only making things worse. It's time to build a people's movement to end unemployment and poverty, avert climate catastrophe, build a sustainable, just economy, and recognize the dignity and human rights of every person. The power to create this new world is not in our hopes. It's not in our dreams. It's in our hands. Um, support Jill Stein's people-powered campaign. You can donate if you, if you want to, and if you're able to. Join with thousands of your neighbors to build the momentum for real change. Support Jill Stein's people-powered campaign today. Anything you give will be matched dollar for dollar by federal matching funds. Let's read about why she's running, uh, why Jill is running for president with the Green Party. Oh, it's pretty much what I just read. Uh, we are being battered by unemployment and inequality. Yep, that's exactly it. So... That's that's her platform, and uh, hard to find fault in that. And I can find fault in a lot of things. <laughs> I'm a bit of a cynic. I'm an optimist and a cynic. So that's great. So Target, I'm not into businesses, big corporations at all. However, when they stand up for good things, I, I think that's great. I'm not encouraging anyone to go to Target or to give them any more money. However, they have said that they are going to make sure that all trans folks have access to bathrooms, which should be a common sense thing. However, since they've said this, um, people are like gonna boycott Target now, and it's, ugh, it's so d people are so dumb, 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 dumb. Um, so this is from All Out, which is an LGBTQ uh, organization, and I'll read a little bit about this. It's just dumb stuff. I don't. I almost don't want to give them any airtime because I don't even want to talk about them. Um, but I appreciate it when businesses, even though I don't like big businesses, I don't like big corporations when they do the right thing, which is common sense. So I'm not even gonna read it. So you know that's. Uh, and I would imagine most listeners of the show um, are not uh, going to go out and be overtly transphobic and in the face, you know, be like, that That would not make sense to me. Although, stranger things have happened, but uh, there we go. Oh, no. Oh, no. Well... Okay, first of all, there's two things to know about this. Uh, I'm on, okay, back in the day, back in the early 2000s, I've repressed a lot of this from the years 2000 to 2008. It might have been because there were some people in the White House and people pulling the strings in the White House that made things terrible. So part of me wants to forget that existed. And I remember I wrote a letter to him, to Ding Dong W, that was like, don't, this is before they went to war. And there's like a lot of folks who were like, don't go to war, don't go to war, don't go to war. And I got a letter back that was like, oh, we have to protect the Iraq people and I was like shut the fuck up anyway so the world can't wait was one of these organ political organizations that was like very much against all that stuff happening and I guess I haven't changed my name because the the email is addressed to my old name and my old email address which I still get uh, that's disturbing in some regards. Um, but then they're saying that Bernie Sanders told MSNBC's Chris Hayes that he supports Obama sending 250 more troops into Syria 
Um, do you think what's being done now is constitutional and legal? Hayes asks Sanders, noting the existence of a list of people that the U.S. government wants to kill. In general, I do. Yes, Sanders replied. In three months, both the ruling class parties will convene to pick the next commander-in-chief. They're making preparations to sell wars of aggression, continued vast surveillance of whole populations, the whole catastrophe of empire. These unjust, immoral, illegitimate wars need to be opposed, especially when the eyes of the world are concentrated on these conventions. If you want to be involved in protests at the Republican convention in Cleveland, July 15th through the 18th, or the Democrats convention in Philadelphia, July 25th to 28th, contact us. And they have a way you can contact them. Again, this is from uh, the world can't wait! Exclamation point. Stop the crimes of your government. Uh, hidden costs of the U.S. air war in Syria. There are near total silence. There is near total silence when U.S. bombs kill civilians in Iraq or Syria. Uh, Nicholas J. S. Davies, author of Blood on Our Hands: The American Invasion and Destruction of Iraq, writes on the outrage continuing in Syria as the U.S. increases troops there. At the very least, U.S. airstrikes have killed hundreds of civilians in Mosul, as well as destroying much of the civilian infrastructure that people depend on for their lives in already dire conditions. And yet, this is, by all accounts, the only, only the beginning of the U.S.-Iraqi campaign to retake Mosul. USA Today reported on April 19th that U.S. air forces bombing Syria and Iraq have been operating under new, looser rules of engagement since last fall. The war commander, Lieutenant General Sean McFarland, Ireland now orders airstrikes that are expected to kill up to 10 civilians without prior approval from the U.S. Central Command, and U.S. officials made it clear to USA Today that U.S. airstrikes are killing more civilians as a result of the new rules. Under these new rules of engagement, the U.S. has constructed has conducted a major escalation of its bombing campaign against Mosul, an Iraqi city of about 1.5 million people, which has been occupied by Islamic State since 2014. Reports of hundreds of civilians uh, killed in U.S. airstrikes reveal some of the human cost of the U.S. air war and the new rules of engagement. Oof. Okay. Next, Washington civilian kill list in Afghanistan. Drone whistleblowers step out of the shadows. In Washington's drone wars, collateral damage comes home. And this is also from World Can't Wait. Uh, Pretap. Uh, Pratap uh, Chatterjee writes about recent films on the U.S. drone war, including National Bird. Sometimes I'm so sad that my heart wants to explode, an Afghan man says, speaking directly into the camera. When your body is intact, your mind is different. You are content. But the moment you are wounded, your soul gets damaged. When your leg is torn off and your gait slows, it also burdens your spirit. The speaker is an unarmed victim of a February 2010 drone strike in Arug's Ruzgan, Afghanistan, but he could just as easily be an Iraqi, a Pakistani, a Somali, or a Yemeni. He appears in National Bird, a haunting new documentary film by Sonia Kennebec about the unexpected and largely unrecorded devastation Washington's drone wars leave in their wake. In it, the audience hears directly from both drone personnel and their victims. National Bird features whistleblowers who have not been public before. When the president and his key officials look at the drone program, they undoubtedly don't see women and children. Instead, they are caught up in a Hollywood-style vision of imminent danger from terrorists and the kind of salvation that a missile launched from thousands of miles away provides. It is undoubtedly thanks to just... It is undoubtedly thanks to just this thought process, already deeply embedded in the American way of war, not that a single candidate for president in 2016 has rejected the drone program. That is exactly what whistleblowers feel needs to change. 
I just want people to know that not everybody is a freaking terrorist and we need to just get that out of the mind. We, we need to just get out of that mindset. And we just need to see these people as people, families, communities, brothers, mothers, and sisters, because that's who they are, says Lisa, a former army nurse. Imagine that this was happening to us. Imagine if our children were walking outside of the door and it was a sunny day and they were afraid because they didn't know if today was the day that something would fall out of the sky and kill someone close to them. How would we feel? And they also have uh, one more. Who is still held at Guantanamo? Because that's still happening. <sighs> Again, not sarcastic, but just angry. Uh, because people wrote to ask who is still in Guantanamo, we are sharing Andy Worthington's list of up of the 80 prisoners still held, almost all of them without charges. Fuck. And you can check this out at closeguantanamo.org. Um, this is from uh, Deborah Sweet, who is the director of World Can't Wait. Man, oh, so that's really... I think there's a lot of folks who thought, oh, Obama's in office and now everything's going to change. And granted, there are things that were in the works before he took office. Um, however, there's a lot of us who are very much like, oh, as long as the system is still in place, a lot of these things are going to continue. And he'd said he was going to close Guantanamo and that hasn't happened. And now there's 80 people who are still there. And imagine if that was someone that you knew and someone that you loved. And imagine if that was you even to be imprisoned without having any any say in in your your life. And that goes back to the beginning of the program with talking about folks even sent to jail for, for growing marijuana, growing a beautiful plant that's medicine. And uh, the idea that folks can be sent to prison and kept there is just really gross. And uh, it would be nice if we lived in a world where that wasn't the case and we lived in the country. I would love to live in a country where like that wasn't, there wasn't weren't jails anywhere. Um, but there are new kids, new babies being born all the time in this country, and they're being born into a country and into a world where prisons are still a thing and people are kept unjustly. And if we don't speak up about it, then we're part of the problem. I really do feel that way. So I'm going to... I was going to also read about the Middle East. We're running low on time. We'll get to Guantanamo, and we'll, we'll see how much we can fit in. Um, so the, if you go to the closeguantanamo.org page, uh, you can... Right, read more information. 779 prisoners have been held by the U.S. military at Guantanamo since the prison opened on January 11, 2002. Of those, 689 have been released or transferred. One was transferred to the U.S. to be tried, and nine have died, the most recent being Adnan Latif in September 2012. 80 men are still held, and 26 of these men have been recommended for release by high-level governmental review processes. To join the campaign for the prisoners' closure in 2016, see the countdown to close Guantanamo and the photos of celebrities and members of the public from around the world. 157 of the 779 prisoners have been released under President Obama, and although no prisoners were released for 15 months from January 2011, two Uyghur... Um, Uy uh, prisoners, Muslims from China's Xinjiang uh, province, were released in April 2012. Another man, Ibrahim Al-Khosi, was given a two-year sentence after a plea deal in January in July 2010, was released in July 2012. And in September 2012, Omar Khadr, a former child prisoner, was transferred to Canada to serve the rest of his sentence. He negotiated as part of a plea deal in October 2010. Ugh. And so if you go to the list, you can uh, see there's just more and more people. 
um, that is extremely depressing and upsetting, and it's it's still happening. And pretending it's not happening isn't going to change anything. So if you go to Close Guantanamo, if you care about this and want to take action or at least spread the word, um, go to closeguantanamo.org. <sighs> this is the world that we live in, so we have to change it. We have to, we have to, we have to. I'll do a show plug. <sighs> That's not a great transition at all. But, uh, or I should say and. Yes, and. Um, so tomorrow, there's going to be a show at the up in Fairfield that I will be uh, taking part in. And, oh, there's another thing. I'm, okay, I'll get to that afterwards, or after this, this great show plug. And this is going to be happening. Um, oh, there's so many great things I was going to share. Oh, I'll get to it. I'm just finding all the information for the show tomorrow. <coughs> Excuse me. So a lot of folks will be performing. And... Um, yeah, we're getting there. Did I post it? I thought I did. This is at the Solano um, Pride Center, and the show is happening tomorrow night, I believe at 7 p.m. A lot of folks are performing. Uh, Samson McCormick, Jesus You Better Work, Ash Fisher, uh, Jess Morgan, and myself. Oh, here we go. Are performing. This is at 7 p.m., and it's at the Solano Pride Center. You can check it out at solanopride.org. And the address is 1234 Empire Street in Fairfield, California. Fairfield, known for the Jelly Belly Factory, which I am boycotting and have been boycotting for a while because the CEO said something transphobic or did something that was bad. And I'm like, no thanks. I can do without your jelly beans. Thank you very much. That's what I think about when I think about Fairfield. However, I'll be going to Fairfield tomorrow. So check out the show if you're up there or if you feel like catching a good, good comedy show. I need to write some comedy. A lot of stuff I write is very political and sometimes not that funny. So I'm going to look for the humor in the tragedy. And we all know there's a lot of tragedy out there. So we'll look for the, the positives in that. So, yeah, and the show is tomorrow at 7 p.m. at uh, Solano Pride uh, Center. And that's, again, at 1234 Empire Street in Fairfield. Now getting to the few things. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot. There's always a lot to share. Um, Amy Goodman I uh, was talking about good things as always and i was going to share um uh, she was just talking about the lack of representation in the media and how even bernie who you know even if we're not 100 percent behind him like don't agree with 100 percent of what he says even he's not getting the uh, equal attention media attention that trump and hillary are getting and that's super problematic so let's listen to what Amy let's listen to what Amy has to say, and then here we go. Whether it's Fox or MSNBC or CNN, you often can't tell the difference. You're flipping from one channel to another, and they're all Trump all the time. It's Trumpland. It's called. This is called How the Media is Ruining the Election. This I election. see the media as a huge kitchen table that stretches across the globe, that we all sit around and debate and discuss the most important issues of the day, war and peace, life and death, and anything less than that is a disservice to a democratic society. It is critical in an election year to hear how policies affect people on the ground, not to get the pundits 
but to get the people themselves. They're bringing you the pundits, and this is true on all the networks, the pundits who know so little about so much, explaining the world to us and getting it so wrong. The media manufactures consent for war, for candidates in elections, by bringing you more, for example, of one person, like Donald Trump. He is pumped into everyone's home. He can just stay in a gold-gilded mansion in New York or one of them in Florida. The rest of the candidates trudge from one state to another. Why does he get this unfiltered uh, pipeline into everyone's brain, into your eyes, into your consciousness. It matters. The Tyndall Center did a report in 2015. They looked at the whole year. They found Donald Trump got 23 times the coverage of, say, Bernie Sanders. They found ABC World News Tonight did something like 81 minutes on Donald Trump. And I think they gave Bernie Sanders 20 seconds. Bernie Sanders is breaking every record. It's the only reason he's getting any coverage right now. I mean, the media, he is shaming the media. In March, he raised something like $44 million. Hillary Clinton raised 29 and change million dollars. $44 million, that hasn't been done before. You break every record and there's a blip in the corporate media radar screen. It just shows how astounding it would be if he got anything near the coverage of the other candidates. Could you imagine where he would be right now? In this high-tech digital age, with high-definition television, digital radio, all we get is static. That veil of distortion and lies and misrepresentations and half-truths that obscure reality. When what we need the media to give us is the dictionary definition of static, criticism, opposition, unwanted interference. We need a media that covers power, not covers for power. We need a media that is the fourth estate, not for the state. And we need a media that covers the movements that create static and make history. And on that note, we're going to end up the show. There's another article that folks can check out. Maybe I'll get to it, maybe. Um, next week, it's it's long, and I want to give it its due attention. And this also comes from The Intercept. And it's a Why a British Fight Over Israel and Anti-Semitism Matters to the Rest of Us. And that's written by Robert Mackey, and it came out today. So I definitely want to get to that, because uh, there has been a lot of conflation. A lot of people who assume that because one is anti-Zionist, that means they are anti-Semitic, and that is not the case. And folks can very much be anti-state and not be anti-Semitic. So that's a discussion that really needs to happen. So I want to read that story next week. Um, stay tuned. Next will be Global Val with Women's Magazine and uh, Mutiny Radio. Um, we're raising funds. Check out on the weekly review page. We have a, There's a fundraiser listed there as well as mutinyradio.fm, ways you can contribute. We also have spaces available, space available for rentals if you want to do a show here. There's shows here every night of the week, um, every day of the week, uh, morning, Afternoon, evening, late night. Uh, There's a lot of good stuff happening, so come by in person and say hello. We're at 2781 21st Street. You can give us a call anytime, 415-550-0511. And live streaming at mutinyradio.fm. So on that note, I hope everyone has a 
pretty great weekend and speak up against injustice um, as often as you can and perhaps that will make a difference and i'll leave some folks with uh, some prints again and this is a really beautiful cover that usually i, I like covers but i'm also like eh. um this is uh from ps22 um the chorus kids from ps22 and uh it's kids kids are our future so they say so here's some really nice kids singing a nice cover of a Prince song. Uh, have a great week, everyone, and we'll be back next week. about uh, cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby! There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternative to smoking. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby! Good, because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again! And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4altacalifornia.com. That's 4altacalifornia.com for a non-addictive, pharmaceutical-free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number 4altacalifornia.com. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a pattern? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> ACLU of California reminds us that we have the right to speak out. Both the California Constitution and the First Amendment to the United States Constitution protect our rights to free expression. There are many questions we face when we decide to organize and speak out. Do we need a permit? Are there limitations? Or when or when can we not demonstrate? What about civil disobedience? For all of this information, please check out ACLUNC.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco.
Alex. Ed, can you tell me what food relieves insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite? I'm going to guess waffles. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Actually, Alex, the food I'm talking about are cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby. There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternative to smoking. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby. Good, because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again. And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4altacalifornia.com. That's 4altacalifornia.com for a non-addictive, pharmaceutical-free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number 4altacalifornia.com. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a pattern? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Yeah, you. You look like the kind of person who has a sense of humor. Uh, is the radio talking to me? No, I'm on an internet podcast. Uh, I'm talking to an internet podcast? Don't be silly. It's a one-way form of communication. But I don't want you to miss out on the Muni Radio Comedy Festival 2016 from March 2nd through 6th. And you don't have to. You can buy tickets now on universe.com with 24 national and international visiting comedians and 20 local hosts. You won't want to miss a thing. What if I can't be at every show? Don't worry. All shows will be available for free download at Mutiny. Angels and guardians, with the unteachable medicine. 
set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Good evening there, my friends, here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's deep in the Mission District where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere five dollars every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because five dollars, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere five dollars is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. Want to go to Burning Man, but you don't have the right goggles, costume, or attitude? Visit 20 Mission Hive at 2415 Mission Street between 20th and 21st in the heart of the Mission District. Easily accessible by BART, this collective of unique artists and vendors has eclectic handmade clothing, leatherwork, artisan jewelry, antiques, crystals, and there's even an amazing florist. Whisper pirate ship.
in we. We got it in we to change reality. To change reality. That was uh, Sacred Red. That was um, Sea Star from the Big Island. Oh, so beautiful. She said that she got in me to change reality, and I'll just say, we got it within we to change reality. And that's what we're about here. That's right. Happy Friday. This is the Common Thread Collective here at MutinyRadio.fm. And I want to say Shabbat Shalom to everybody. Peace. I want to say Happy Fr- uh, Freya's Day. And uh, 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 people don't know, I'm about to, uh, I'm about to take off, uh, uh, Val, I'm about to go off on my on my on my North American tour. Yep. But you'll be holding it down. I will. I will, and you'll be our far out, far flung correspondent, every, calling in on Fridays. Every Friday, I'll call in with the phone in my hand. Yep. I'm talking about Missoula. Minneapolis, points in between, New York City, and then before we get off, off, uh, off we'll have to look the, off, off the, the grid, off the grid, and the Rainbow Gathering, and the Green Mountains of Vermont, all of that's, uh, and then afterwards, we're, we're, uh, afterwards, I'm going down to uh, Philadelphia with Felipe, hopefully getting a caravan together, and, uh, and, uh, and feeding the people, and I'm calling it, this is the first time you're here on this station, I'm calling it Occupy Philly, Occupy during the Democratic Convention and inviting the Bernie delegates. Be sure to come on. Don't give up. Come on through. I hope Bernie will issue a Hugh manifesto saying all your delegates, there's hundreds of Bernie delegates who have never done this before, were elected uh, outside of the political structure. He's not a Democrat. Remember, he's a Democratic Socialist. And I hope they come to town and we'd be occupying. And that's a dream I have. Well... May the dreams come true. Well, that's today, too. It's a question of saying uh, p- planet on the planet to a degree. Well, anyway, we got Ubi. We do have Ubi. We're going to play because uh, even when things get a little just out of hand, Ubi lets us know, don't worry so much. Everything's going to be, gonna be all, right. all right. Oh, my God. 
Thank you, Ubi, for letting us know everything is going to be all right. Thanks for listening to the Common Thread Collective here on MutinyRadio.fm. I'm Global Val. I'm here with Diamond Dave, and I'm here with James Zealous, who's our guest interviewer today, um, because we have a, a rather esteemed guest, an author and poet and scholar, uh, Mr. Peter Dale Scott. So, uh, James Zealous, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Global Val. Um, I say I'm very excited uh, to be here at the Common Third Collective and to have uh, our guest, who will be in in a moment, Mr. Peter Dale Scott. Peter, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely here. I'm definitely in a good, good situation. Uh, James is going to be interviewing you in a bit later. I might have some questions to jump in and uh, jump in. It's good to hear your voice again. Hey, Peter. Yeah, I'm here. I'm looking forward to this. Well, we're doing it. The past shakes hands of the future to the now, right now. Take it away, James. Welcome to the Common Center Collective, Mr. Scott. Uh, Welcome. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Very good. Um, your work was brought to my attention by our poet laureate of the United States Emeritus, Mr. Robert Hass, who uh, wrote an essay of, uh, describing uh, one of three books he wrote, a very unique trilogy, Seculum. Uh, the first of those three books is what Mr. Hass uh, wrote an, uh, an essay about and can be found in uh, What Light Can Do. And that was your book, Coming to Jakarta. I hope you could share with us today some thoughts on that trilogy. I understand you have some recent work, a, a book about the writing of the trilogy. Is that correct? Well, yes. Well, that book is still in process. The, the poem, uh, Coming to Jakarta, it occupied me for a decade in the 1980s. I began, I was acutely depressed in 1980 for a number of reasons which come up in the poem, one of them being the election of Ronald Reagan. Uh, and I wrote it very quickly, almost on impulse, in about six weeks, and then spent uh, eight years refining it and rewriting it. And the course of that time, um, Bob Hass, uh, he and I were both teaching at Cal at that time, and he gave it to a, a version of it to his class to read. And uh, then I got some input from the class, and one of the people in the class actually helped me a lot. The occasion for the poem is the massacre in Indonesia in 1965, where still a lot of people in America are not very aware of the fact, I mean, all the devastation being done by ISIS now is is nothing, really, compared to, we don't know how many people were killed. A, a, a low estimate, the lowest estimate is about 250,000. The safe estimate is uh, half a million, but a lot of people believe it was more than a million, maybe even as much as two million. And, of course, nothing ISIS has done begins to compare to that. <clears throat> and the targets were, first of all, the, the, the Communist Party in Indonesia, which was the, the most westernized uh, party in Indonesia. And in a sense, uh, pro people with Western ideas were the targets of this massacre. And in this case, uh, I believed and had written that the CIA was uh, helping out, and British intelligence, MI6, were helping out. And this just made me feel terrible that uh, there was this massacre, it had happened, and nobody knew about it in America. And that's what uh, led to a kind of uh, 
I, I thought of it as a breakdown time. I think it was really more like some kind of panic attack. The, it, the, the attack lasted only 12 hours or so through a night when I couldn't sleep. But I began to write my way out of it, and uh, I did a lot of very rapid writing, not knowing where it was going. I didn't know it was going to be a poem about about Jakarta or about Indonesia until I'd written about 20 pages. Anyway, that's the book that caught Bob Hass's attention, other people's attention, too. It's my best-known poem, I think. And um, and uh, so, yes, he, at the time, he said it was the most important political poem to have been written in the English language for a very long time. So that made me feel better. I went from being very depressed to feeling much better that my depression had led to a product other people liked. As many authors write to heal, this is a poem of healing. It is germane to the conversation, I would I would argue, as we look at the security state, at the activities yes, uh, of the NSA. I felt that it, it very much was a, a, a process of healing for me, uh, but I feel that uh, there's some kind of analogy to the way that uh, nations heal. This has been particularly difficult for Indonesia because what happened as a result of the massacre was the imposition of a political dictatorship, military dictatorship. Um, and the man who came in in 1965 was there until he was ousted for corruption in 1998. And even for a decade after that, the military still ran the country. And you were not allowed to mention the massacre unless you called it the PKI Gestapo, in other words, blaming it on the PKI, which is the Communist Party. The Communist Party did not inaugurate this massacre. They were the victims of it, and they were blamed for it. For the uh, There was a coup attempt, which was, I think, a false flag attempt blamed on the Communists. And uh, for so until I think 19, 2007 or something like that, quite recently, you could go to jail if you didn't, if you mentioned the massacre and didn't blame it on the PKI. And they had a, a whole warehouse full of textbooks that were destroyed in 2007 because uh, they had failed to do the obligatory thing, blame it on the PKI. So uh, the country now is getting out of that, and there have been two movies by an American, Josh Oppenheimer, both of them nominated for an Oscar, by the way, docu long feature documentaries. First one, The Act of Killing. <clears throat> the second one, The Look of Silence. And because they were on the internet and the government could do nothing about it, Indonesia is now waking up, so to speak, beginning to talk about this thing, having conferences about it. They're going, I think, it's been decided by the government that they will have a, some kind of truth and conciliation, reconciliation process. So uh, you can, t there has been a great healing and art in the form of these two movies uh, played a big role in that act of healing. 
And if I could blow my own horn here, I got an unsolicited email from this Josh Oppenheimer, who I had never met or heard of until then, saying that he had been influenced by my poem and by my prose in making the movies. So there's, um, you know, that, that really makes me feel good that art can have a good social function. I, for uh, for 20 years, I thought I'd been totally useless and that my art wasn't affecting anything at all. But I have a better feeling about it now because of Josh Oppenheimer's movies. Uh, well, well, I'm, I'm just going to jump in with one question. I've been reading late, getting to what uh, two archipelagos, the Indonesia, where these massacres took place, and the Philippines. Now, yeah, as I know, in the Philippines, there's been... Archipelago, one blends into the other. That's what I'm talking about. Before the coming of the, uh, the Dutch and the, the, the Dutch and the Spanish, they were blended perfectly, they were blended fine. But, uh, but now we have two archipelagos, that's one uh, through, uh, through just uh, political boundaries. One is the Philippines, where they did have those, those discussions, where there was not uh, the kind of massacre. In fact, discussions did take place between the Communist Party of the Philippines, the New People's Army, and the, and, and the government, and they seem to have come to that uh, kind, of, uh, kind of a truce, a uh, kind of a truce, where there are two well, Philippines, Red Philippines. and trouble, I think, and the man they've just elected in the Philippines, uh, I, I haven't really researched him, but I've seen allegations that he was in charge of repressive units that were some people have called death squads. So they're, they're not free of violence, but there's nothing, nothing like the violence that you had, this kind of huge frenzy. It, was, it, it went, I think, beyond what anyone had originally imagined. The, the, the army certainly started the massacring, but uh, it, 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 people went berserk, and there were, uh, of course, there were a lot of personal vendettas. If, if you owed money to somebody, the simple thing was to kill them, and so on. But yes, it was uh, the the result of colonialism uh, was was bad in both archipelagos, but uh, eventually much worse in Indonesia. You make the argument, or I, I draw the conclusion, that coming to Jakarta tells a story of how that action taken was trotted out as a successful trumping of communism and sold as an idea, perhaps, to underwrite the adventure of Vietnam. Yes, it happened at the same time as Vietnam, and uh, one of the analyses of why the Americans wanted to do it because they were very keen to have the army go in and take care of the Communist Party, but they knew that the army was frightened of China. And they wanted to put what they called a shield in Vietnam to keep in, to interpose between China and Indonesia. And if you had a big U.S. presence in Vietnam, you didn't need to win a war, you just needed to be there. That's the key, I think, to all these wars, where these hopeless wars we keep on fighting. Afghanistan will never win that one. Uh, Iraq, we're back in. Uh, we're never going to win in any conventional sense. But the presence of U.S. troops is what matters, and in the case of Iraq, it means that the government of Kazakhstan is willing to make contracts with Chevron and Exxon 
and uh, not fear Russia because he's got Russian armies to the north, but now there's an American army to the south. So it's, um, it, it, it doesn't make what sense on one level, it does make sense on another level, and uh, it's imperialism. It looks like the business of war. I was... Um, the poem is less... I mean, it, it, if you read my poem, it's not going to tell you an enormous amount about what happened in Indonesia, although it, it did some things, and I, I learned a lot writing the poem and researching that led to certain prose things I wrote, and uh, one of the consequences, which is kind of amusing, I, I actually got to debate William Colby, who the, was the, at that time the ex- head of the CIA and before that head of the Asia desk at the time of the massacre. So uh, it, uh, it, 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 it created minor waves among intellectuals and so on. Um, but most of the poem was just uh, the feeling of uh, which I think most people have. You know, this is an awful world and we would love to do something about it, but we can't or we can't seem to get anything done. So it's, it's, a, it's a mixture of the personal and the political. You mentioned earlier that a, a book in progress is the writing of the, uh, a book about the writing of this trilogy. Can you talk about that? Yes, well, first of all, I, I did an article for something called uh, the Asia, uh, uh, Asia Political Journal, uh, in which I just talked about how writing the poem, well, no, I think I better begin somewhere else. Uh, I, I have a, a friend, a former student, but a now a very good friend and helper, and colleague, uh, co-author, who uh, loved the poem and uh, persuaded me two years ago to sit down and do some interviews uh, explaining the poem, because the poem really needs explanation. And so he interviewed me, there are a total of 22 interviews, each one about half an hour long, and uh, he has asked me matter-of-fact questions about what's happening in the poem, and that's the core of the book. And originally it was going to be the book, I was just going to give, transcribe those essays and write a few introductory words, uh, and that would be it. But, you know, interview, being interviewed by him, it took over a year. Um, I thought more and more about the poem, and I realized that the poem had really been very important to me in developing my own political ideas. I, I, I'm known for talking about deep politics, the politics that doesn't get mentioned, the, the locus of power in a zone that is so hidden that the media, the, 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 the mainstream media never write about it. And I realized that I had uh, been empowered to develop those ideas by writing the poem. The poem helped my political thinking, particularly because there was one event, I recovered a memory in the in writing the poem, it comes at the very end of the poem, and you would have thought it was such a vivid event that it would be 
something you'd never forget, but I had totally repressed it. And this is what happened. Uh, there's somebody, a friend of mine called Al McCoy, wrote a book called The Politics of Heroin, and I was writing a book called The War Conspiracy at the same time. This is way back in 72, 1972. And uh, he came out here on his way to Indochina, and I phoned somebody that I had met at an anti-war uh, event a few months before. This man had said he was in special forces, and he had seen opium loaded onto CIA planes, Air America. So, and I had a contact for him, so I phoned him and I said, would you be willing to talk to my friend Al McCoy and myself? This was a late afternoon, and he said, sure. And he gave us his address in Palo Alto. And the next morning, Al and I drove down to Palo Alto, and we knocked on, we walked up a few steps to his door, banged on the door, and he came out with his fingers to his lips, indicating that we ought to speak. And this was kind of surprising because we had come to talk to him. And then he led us down the stairs, and then he began to talk. And he said, "Look at my look at my MG." And we looked at it. It was a convertible with a steel door, and there was a hole in the door about a foot in diameter. And he said, and then he said, "Now look at the floor of my MG." And the floor was made of wood. And he said. They use an implosive device to bomb my car. That must have been my old unit. They're telling me I can't talk to you. Well, I had just witnessed a, a terrorist event, very a small one, admittedly, but the use, the use of terror to intimidate and silence this guy we were going to talk to. And this was all on the basis of a phone call that I had had with him the night before. So you might think this is a pretty uh, unforgettable thing. In fact, is I forgot about it, and so did Al McCoy. And eventually, when Al McCoy uh, wrote the final edition of his major book, The Politics of Heroin, he mentions my account of it in the preface. He quotes from the poem Coming to Jakarta because that's how he recovered his memory was through my sharing with him the poem. Well, you know, I think quite a lot of this goes on. We repress, if there are things that don't, why would I not remember something like that? I think it, it's just too, too scary. I think if there are things that... Uh, that we don't want to think about, we repress them. And I think the job of poetry is to bring our consciousness back to those things that we don't want to face and uh, and also to lead a way out. Because um, if I hadn't found a way out by healing the poem, I might not have recovered that memory. It's significant to me. It was the, I recovered a lot of memories in writing the poem, but that is literally the very last one on the last page but one of the poem. And uh, that's because it was the scariest of all in my relatively un unscary life. So that's where I think that 
poetry is uh, can contribute to politics. And you were asking about the book I'm writing now. I wrote an essay about recovering that memory and how it led to my notion of deep politics. I published that, uh, I think, uh, in 2011. And uh, then I realized that should go in this book. So the total title of my book is Poetry and Terror, the Poetics and Politics of Coming to Jakarta, because the, uh, the process the, uh, is, is as much political as is po poetical. So that's the core of the book, is those interviews, uh, a couple of introductions, a prose essay I wrote way back in the 1980s, informed by the research which I had done for the poem, and then this, you might say, the most original part is this, how poetry can lead to a, an informed, deeper sense of politics. That's the book. We speak of poetry as healing. It was a healing for yourself, and I believe bringing the focus to the reading audience, to pieces of history they might have heard about in passing. I mean, even Hollywood films, like uh, uh, that Mel Gibson film with um, uh, Lethal Weapon, made reference to running opium out of Vietnam and the silence that is enforced by those who are still doing it. When you see real accounts such as you give it brings it out of the uh, the uh, the imagination and brings it into the real uh, which then perhaps creates the uh, the uh, the attention of the of the group to of the group focus to do some more research and that's where the healing starts yeah and actually it even raises questions of what is real because uh, i don't think my belief is as human beings we're not really supposed to be living in the kind of system that we're living in now. <coughs> and that, uh, and that we're, I'm not talking about Indonesia now, I'm not talking about my own poetry. For, since the beginning of time, I think that uh, the, the world has been an unsatisfactory world and we are, there's something in us, or certainly most of us, or some of us, that wants a better world, and poetry is our way of grasping for that other world. And that other world may not exist yet, but that doesn't mean for me that it's not real, maybe not even more real than this uh, insane world that we're living in now. And we're caught between two different kinds of worlds, and poetry is the vehicle to escape from this one to, to the other one and back. Um that there is an innate goodness in humans that is frustrated by our current civilization is referenced perhaps by you on page 25 as you uh, speak of the horrors of the Indonesian uh, civil war and you say or you gentle reader let us examine carefully the good reasons you and I don't enjoy reading this yeah right oh you got the poem there yes um, and, uh, you know, I, I was writing this out as a process. Uh, I didn't understand the reasons I didn't enjoy, and the poem continues to explore them and actually goes back into my childhood, and then I realized that I, too, was violent as a child, and I have to wonder why that is. I'm still wondering, by the way. <laughs> Even after the interview with my friend uh, Freeman Ng, uh, 
the uh, I, 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 I was a lot wiser about the evil in myself but it's a, I believe it's there's no proof for this whatsoever but I believe that the it is uh, we're most human when we're behaving in, in, in concert with other people and getting along with other people and if of course uh, there are times when all of us don't but I attribute that to the way that we are deformed by the frustrations of life and some people of course have terrible lives and become terribly deformed um, now you can't prove that and I have friends uh, I have one friend in particular who believes that no it's uh, it's, it's equally human to be a saint or to be a sinner that there, there isn't a preference in human nature for one over the other I think there is a genetic tendency to become better than we are now and that we're not as a, as a species, uh, maybe we're, we haven't really reached the fullness of development when we will be better than we are now. You know, cannibalism used to be widespread. Now, it still occurs, but we usually regard it as uh, pretty dysfunctional if it happens. And, uh, and uh, there's, you know, Freud himself said that certain desires become repressed, and he pointed to cannibalism as being the, the one that has been most uh, widely uh, suppressed as, as a rule. So that's just a belief. And I think I, even if I didn't believe that, I think I still would write poetry, but I do believe it, and it's, my poetry is very connected to that belief. as we speak of poems and healing um, so often you are, are uh, asked to trot out uh, the, um, the world on fire and the uh, reasons behind it would you share with us sir a poem of your own Love that. a poem oh my gosh I should have been ready for that uh, I, I, I suppose I do a poem that's completely different just to uh, I, you know I'm now 87 uh, my there are a lot of things I no longer do that I used to do. And if I can just find, yes, here's the book I want. Uh, this is a book called Tilting Point that came out in 2012. And part of it is political, but this particular poem is not. It's, uh, it's about what happens to me when I go out uh, for a walk in the morning and Excuse me just a second here. Here it is. I go out for a walk in the morning, and uh, a young jogger, female jogger, aged about 18 and very short shorts, uh, comes running towards me and brushes against me as she goes by. And for some weird reason, this uh, gets me interested. And I have written this poem. It's a, dedicated to Allegra. Allegra is all of these women. Uh, but you say it still happens I, the odds are about one in three that will happen any given morning so I wrote this poem to Allegra I walk towards you in the morning dark and you come running did I discern a spark of recognition in your wayward glance of all we share in our too brief romance yes 
For a moment you smile at me as if embarrassed by this brevity. Ironic that you, at maybe 17, should race so avidly to the unseen, and I should haltingly, at 81, still mindful of so much I have not done, pace step by step as my sclerotic eye, obsessed with the vastness of what is nearby, Narcissi stiffening upwards by degrees, buds bursting open in the tulip trees, while simultaneously in a squall hundreds of star magnolia petals fall. I is roused to a final furtive peak towards the scintillations of your silken shorts. And if I called out, sweetheart, not so fast, we need to make each precious moment last. It is too late. You have already passed. Enlightening my sweet confusion, is love no more than brief illusion? Or rather, a predetermined grace to enhance our inevitable race. It's maybe not the poem you expected, but you caught me blindsided. I should have had a poem ready, and I didn't. There are plenty of political ones. They tend to be too long, though. Peter, I don't know if you take uh, uh, requests, but I'm looking at your homing poem, a winter poem. It's, I, it seems to speak to some themes that have been in this interview. I wondered if you, you would read your, your, your opening title poem to Tilting Point. Oh, yeah, that's a, that, that's a much more serious poem, of course. I, I have to get to it. Homing, a winter poem. Uh, it's relevant. I should mention that I'm a Canadian, so I come from north of the border. And that the tundra swans uh, in the winter they come down to the delta. I go to I go to see them every winter. It's, it's a sacred thing for me. And then in the summer they fly up to northern Canada or even to Siberia. There there are green, uh, swans and cranes that come here from Siberia every winter. And that is the occasion of the poem. Uh, and it's dedicated to Thomas Tranströmer, a Swedish poet who has a similar image in one of his poems. I'll skip the epigraph because it takes too long to explain. So here's the poem. Thank you for asking for that one. That's one of my favorite poems. So here we go. Tundra swans have come back from the frozen Arctic to the Delta marshes where I, far from home, drawn by a view of the open sea and by the ancient future in the fantastic gospels of Jubu and Nortona, have spent my years building structures for that dawn, each poem a conduit from our irreplaceable present to a glimpse of odyssey towards a promised land. Structures I at last perceive amid the remnant of a tribe who have lost faith in themselves, seeing their hands stained with blood, their factory doors closing, their songbirds silenced, were mostly made of sand in a tidal area. But even at my age, sensing the sad range of human folly, my habits are entrenched. 
we are what we have become, still hoping to please my dead parents, I go on blindly building in the space created by wars as the tundra swans, inspired by the tilt of the earth, get ready to leave for the exact northern marshes where they were born. Well, Peter, thank you for being part of this irreplaceable presence at the Common Thread Collective. I sincerely hope you'll agree to come back and read more poetry in the future. Yeah. I'd love to. Thank you. I enjoyed this. Hey, Peter. Yo, Peter. This is me, Diamond Dave. And I just want to say to you, I felt you. I was right there. I'd be 78. Okay. Which, <laughs> I'd be 78. Which of you, which of you had pulled out these poems? Who, who, who wanted to read, hear Tundra, the homing poem? That was James, but it took me right back to where, took me where I'm, just before I turned 78, Peter. Okay. I'm thinking I'm an old man now. No, you're a young man. I'm, I'm all young. over. I'm about to tell you. To, to, take a deep breath. I'm about to tell you. Oh, I'm an old man now. It's all over. Almost 80. And you're over 80. It's all and Then I heard the voice of the Spirit. I believe you too. And here's what she said. I'm a Sufi. You heard the voice of the Spirit, and here's what she said. Learn to love. Love to learn never ends. Learn to love. Love to learn this never ends. Because that same situation, I'll be walking along a similar situation, and uh, I'll exchange glances, and it becomes more than a glance with some young woman as she's going by. She checks me out. I check her out. We have a moment of communication, as you were saying so yeah, well. well. They check you out. I'm not sure they're really checking me out. but not in the way they checked you <laughs> they, out, too. Uh, they're, they're polite. They, uh, I think they're... They, 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 if I, if I don't nudge them, they're not going to uh, be nasty to me. Richard, so Richard. Are, we, are we done now? Well, I'm about to have one more sentence, Peter. Yes? Uh, uh, Peter, uh, 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 acknowledge each other. I'm having trouble hearing you. Okay, acknowledging each other's existence. What I, I said, I learned to love, love to learn. That love will get you everywhere. Hate will get you nowhere. And that's where I am. And it does go. And it does go. And we connect to us. And we realize we're all on the planet together. Did we plan well, it? And here true. we are. You see, I think that's true. I talk to this. I <laughs> we didn't get into this, but uh, Theodore Adorno talks about alterity. That all art has a vision of some other world, and that's what makes it art. And I add to that that there's an alternative. There's, some of the art is true. I mean, some of the some of some art just creates fantasy. Some art creates truth. I think what you just said is true. Give me. As I said, I've uh, been, uh, it's been 15 years since I had talked to you, and I was well, more than that, but I have my sobriety, I haven't had a drink in 15 years, so these things are opening up. And as a Sufi, I understand with the dervish. The dervish is about the dervish, it's a lifelong process, the doorway, but the door, doorway between the two worlds, the world within and the world without. And that's what we're about weaving together. That's what art's about, that's what poetry is about, the spiritual path is about is this doorway, the doorway between the two worlds, the world within and the world without. Exactly. So, Peter, glad to be on the same page with you. Loving you, brother. We be doing what we're doing. It's called community and communication. Take it away, James. I was going to ask him if he's interested in why Rumi is in my book, my prose book. 
Well, I didn't know he was, but do you know that Rumi was not just a poet, but a dervish. And dervish is, uh, is the Farsi word for doorway, doorway between the two worlds. Where is that? Where is that in your, in a, do you have that in his prose book? Do you, do you know, do you know where Rumi was born? I, 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 I know in Persia. Tell me more. I know he's in Afghanistan, and then he and his family were pushed all the way to Turkey when the uh, when he was the born in the city of Balk, B A L K H, in Afghanistan. One of the oldest cities in the world. Uh, when he was uh, 13 years old, the Mongols arrived, and because the city of Balk resisted, and I think they killed somebody in the the ruling family, the the Khans. They killed everybody in the city. They, they, the city was once supposed to be the largest city in the world. It was the, a major city on the Silk Road. And uh, the Mongols leveled it. And since then, it's just been a pile of rubble. And that was what Rumi had to cope with in his life. And that, to me, is, uh, you know, his, his life was a healing of that disaster. I look at the major poets in my life, like uh, Virgil, Dante, Wordsworth, they've all contemplated, uh, or T.S. Eliot, they, they've all contemplated disaster like that. And their art, which is the art that really interests me, is a poetry that is a healing from disaster. And, and, that's, and that's where the, I'm jumping in to say, that I feel like that's where the, the bravery of poetry really comes from because when you when you live through or witness or know of <clears throat> these these tragedies um, and then having having that the wherewithal and the bravery to write about it um, I think is is kind of the, the kind of opens the floodgates um, for whatever comes next and and that healing we've been talking about I agree with that I agree you when something like that happens either you're crushed or else you have to summon up a, 